Hi, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Today we'll be talking to Blake Alcar, who is an assistant professor of otolaryngology, or ear, nose, and throat, at the Harvard Medical School at the Mass Ioneer Infirmary. He's also an assistant director of the Center for Global Surgery Evaluation. And he's going to talk with us today about what he's doing in the world of global health and how it connects to financial toxicity in the U.S. healthcare system. Yeah, I think one of the things that I found particularly interesting with Blake is the fact that we spend a lot of time as physicians thinking about what's going on around the world and how we can help countries to provide high-level healthcare and high-quality healthcare. And sometimes we forget what's going on at home. And I think one of the things that stands out a lot is that when we're looking at providing high-quality healthcare in developing countries at a reasonable price, uh, there's a really important parallel, which is how do we continue to do that back here in the U.S. and make sure that we're not bankrupting people with the quality of healthcare that we're providing. Yeah. So let's have a listen with Blake. Blake, thank you so much for joining us. It's just such a pleasure to have you here. As we were speaking about before we started recording, it's been 10 years since you and I worked together in the hospital and some people you don't forget and I haven't forgotten you. So it's great to have you here. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a background of where you are, what you're doing, and uh, we'll go from there? Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, I have to say it, it actually is a huge honor for me to be here. Um, I've been a fan of the uh, moral injury paper and theme, and so glad that you are building this out um, and to the movement that it is. So uh, I'm very humbled to be able to have this conversation. Thank you. A bit of background, yeah, I am a, a comprehensive otolaryngologist or ENT at Mass Ioneer Infirmary. Um, I've uh, been an attending there for about uh, six years now. And then my research hat is primarily um, in the global surgery realm. I work with uh, the program in global uh, global surgery at Harvard Medical School, which is uh, led by John Mira, which I suspect uh, uh, many of you know. Um, and I I divide my time about eighty um, percent clinical, twenty uh, percent research. And I've been doing the global surgery research now since about two thousand eight. So I've been able to have a, a robust experience um, in large part because of actually John's leadership. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are the things you're doing in global surgery and how did you get into it? When I was a medical student, um, I had already known then that I wanted to marry career in clinical medicine and global health. I, I credit my dad, actually, um, who is a, an orthopedist who developed a relationship with an NGO in Ecuador and for decades um, traveled to Ecuador and um, did really uh, amazing work. Ethics aside of what I'm about to say, when I was 13, um, I started to travel with him. And when I was 13, I knew instantly on that trip, A, I wanted to be a doctor, um, and B, I wanted to marry that with global health. I was just so in awe of not just what my dad was doing, but what the whole team was doing um, uh, for patients and patient care. And so fast forward again to medical school, um, uh, John Mira, I'm going to say his name a lot. He's a, a big leader in global surgery and one of my, if not my primary mentors. Um, he was an otolaryngologist or completed ENT residency before he went to plastic surgery. 
And everybody knows John. And so when I was, uh, as a medical student at Harvard, telling folks I was really interested in global uh, surgery, global health, they were like, well, you got to meet this guy, John Miro. Um, and so I sat down with John and, you know, our interest aligned fairly immediately, which is initially making the economic case for global surgery. In other words, as healthcare practitioners, it's obvious to us we're, we're in it because we want to alleviate suffering, right? Um, but for policymakers, they need a little bit something more. And, and the economic argument has proven to be time and time again, a powerful argument um, going back to HIV and malaria, um, to maternal health. And so um, over the next few years, I developed economic models that looked at the both the cost and the benefits of developing surgical systems in low resource settings. Um, and uh, that's primarily what I've done. Um, but now I'm branching out into uh, global ENT as well to try and get our subspecialty to latch on to the broader global surgery movement. That's fascinating. So when you say that you're working in global surgery, what does that mean? Like, what, what's the cool stuff you're doing? <laughs> right. What is global surgery? So the majority of what I do these days is uh, in part working uh, as a mentor for uh, the program in global surgery and social change at the medical school. This means that I have the opportunity to mentor unbelievably smart and talented uh, medical students and surgical residents um, from around the world. And so this involves everything from helping develop uh, a, a surgical research curriculum with our colleagues in Haiti um, to continuing to develop uh, mathematical models um, to make the case for, uh, or the economic case for global surgery. Uh, you know, I think as a bit of background, one of the, the major projects that I was able to participate in was in 2015, something called the Lancet Commission on Global Surgery. And long story short, a Lancet Commission is a, um, a way to bring uh, attention to a topic in global health and this was one of the things that year that really put global surgery on the map. And so when I say doing global surgery, I really mean um, having a piece in both being mentored and mentorship, um, doing the nerdy uh, economic modeling, which um, uh, for better or worse, I love, um, and um, working with colleagues to not just prove the case that, you know, again, beyond the, the humanitarian need. There, there's uh, additional um, protection uh, that comes from uh, access to healthcare services, but working with policymakers, whether it be World Bank, WHO, um, to try to implement changes that will have on-the-ground differences for patients. And what might one of the examples of those changes look like? So on a broad level, one of the things that came out of the um, Lancet Commission is something called a National Surgical Obstetric and Anesthesia Plan. And the goal with the National Surgical or Obstetric and Anesthesia Plan, uh, also known as an NSOAP for short, is um, to set out high-level policy um, at the uh, Ministry of Health level um, to develop uh, the pillars of a, a surgical system. So thinking about education, thinking about infrastructure, um, quality of care, uh, EMR accessibility, and as a, a big component of that is financial risk protection. Um, not just thinking about providing high quality care, but making sure 
that patients don't go bankrupt for that. So we're the PGSSC um, or the Program in Global Surgery, as it's known in short, has played a role in developing uh, those NSOPs in uh, collaboration with many other academic partners and primarily led by the Ministries of Health. And now we're kind of in this phase where we have plans and we have to implement them. Uh, so uh, we're running into you know the, the question of funding and there's a lot of uh, uh, initiatives currently ongoing to increase funding from everything from a, a global fund for surgery um, to private uh, private donations. So that's broad. And then, you know, on the ground, I, I would just use the um, uh, example of having the opportunity to develop a research curriculum for uh, surgical residents in Haiti. Uh, that was done in collaboration with um, uh, research leaders in Haiti. Um, frankly, on our side, we just kind of provided the tools and the uh, um, some of the resources, but I think um, there's an opportunity to have both a, a, a personal um, engagement with global surgery, um, whether it be research, which is where I primarily live, not really clinically, and then sort of the high-level policy level. Blake, can you give us a little bit of an entree into how this links into your work in financial toxicity? Because I think there's a link that you alluded to there between global surgery and financial toxicity, both yes. in the countries outside of the U.S., but also the U.S.? Oh, yeah. Well, the U.S. being one of the worst. So I have a very good friend and colleague, um, a guy named Dr. Mark Schreim, who's a head and neck surgeon and also a reconstructive surgeon who really has um, prioritized and put catastrophic exp expenditures or financial toxicity at the forefront of the global surgery movement. Um, and I was lucky that he was at the Mass Pioneer when I was a resident. And so I collaborated with him on a number of his projects. So for example, um, he uh, demonstrated with some, uh, again, nerdily, really beautiful models um, that 40 to 80 million people every year are pushed into poverty paying for surgery. Not only that, but 3.7 billion people um, are at risk of um, catastrophic expenditure or being pushed into poverty if they had to pay for a surgical procedure. So that was sort of the background that I had even before I was in attending um, and thinking about these issues. And, you know, I think the bridge between that work and my work as a clinician was that I started to realize that the decisions that I was making, or the treatment recommendations, I should say, could potentially have profound impacts on people's ability um, to be financially solvent. Um, so for example, uh, as an ENT, we prescribe nose sprays and eardrops on a regular basis. Well, even though my EMR will tell me that a spray is covered or a drop is covered, half the time that's wrong, and a patient comes back to me and says, you know, doc, I picked up those drops. They were really helpful, but they cost 150 bucks. And I'd say, oh my gosh, you know, why didn't you tell me this? Um, and so more as time has gone by, I've started to consider that if we're taking care of the whole person, thinking about the potential financial effects um, on patients, uh, and, and this is just speaking for myself, um, is, is paramount to that. And uh, I'll reference one other uh, study, again, led by uh, Mark Schreim. This is U.S.-based that really impacted the way I think about this. 
he did something called the discrete choice experiment, which the methodology is, uh, frankly, a little bit up above my head. But he basically posed a question um, to uh, potential patients about the trade-offs between financial solvency and uh, for a potentially lethal disease cure. And I think a lot of us, um, including myself, would have thought, well, the vast majority of people would have taken a cure-at-all-cost approach. Turns out that's not the case at all. Only 30% of respondents favored a cure-at-all-cost approach. Another 40% said they maybe favored cure over solvency or they were about equal. But then 20% of those patients actually favored financial solvency over their health. One in 12 would not risk any of their health to, as a trade-off for making them worse off financially. So for me, this sort of blew the, the lid off thinking about financial toxicity and that when I make recommendations for my patients, um, I can't assume that they're on a page of cure at all cost, especially because in ENT, a lot of what I do is, is frankly, is quality of life related. And so all of that research, I think, and again, I credit Mark with this, primed me to think about the potential financial effects on patients in the clinical setting. I think those numbers, every time I hear them, and, and you've told them to me more than once, every time I hear them, they're astonishing. Because I think as as clinicians, we don't. there's a part of us that doesn't want to believe that patients might choose that, that they might be so worried about bankruptcy that they would choose not to get care. Um, it's really heartbreaking. And I wonder how that has changed, how the work that you've done in that regard has changed how you approach patients on a day-to-day. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Wendy and I, we've talked about a, a particular patient before. We'll, we'll call her Mary. Um, uh, Mary is a, is a long-term patient of mine um, who, when I first started to see her, um, mentioned to me that she had tens of thousands of dollars worth of bills from prior surgeries um, uh, at another institution. And the intimate, or the, what she implied was that she didn't even consider that to be a um, the catastrophe or the scandal that it was. And she was at, in a minimum wage paying job just working to pay that off. And I said, Mary, that's absolute insanity. So I asked her to bring the bills next time. We looked at them together. Um, she had a particular insurance carrier that I, I won't name here, but uh, I've come to learn is um, highly problematic. Um, and we looked at her bills together. And I said, listen, none of this frankly makes sense. The, the, as with most hospital bills, there's not a lot of transparency um, into what is actually the charges were for. So I gave her some names of a patient advocacy group. Um, and thankfully, this financial advocacy group was able to take care of her bill for her. But again, she was just going to pay it because that was the assumption. That was what she had to do. And so now what I sort of think about is in addition to making sure when I talk about a surgery that patients understand the difference between a premium, a deductible, out-of-pocket max, co-insurance, and providing codes so that they can um, 
uh, talk to their insurance companies about what they might owe out of pocket. I've taken to talking about GoodRx, which I suspect many of our uh, listeners would be familiar with. Uh, for those that aren't, GoodRx, um, I, I honestly don't understand the mechanics of how it works. Um, but if and somebody's insurance doesn't cover a medication, um, you can use GoodRx and it'll provide a benefit for most medications that are much less than an out-of-pocket cost. So now anytime I prescribe a nose spray, anytime I prescribe drops, I talk about GoodRx and I make sure they know about it so that they're not going to make a trade-off for some eardrops that are frankly substitutable and paying for their groceries or you know uh, family needs. And so that is as you and I talked about previously Wendy, you know, it adds to an appointment, right? If if you have 20 minutes to do a history exam, counseling and write a note, well those extra few minutes um which I still think are important um and I still do them, but that weighs on you after uh, after a while so um, blake the the next obvious question is um and i i recognize there may be no simple answer to this but what would you change if you could um because obviously there are things that we are all experiencing that are suboptimal um what are the what are the what are the easy fixes and what are the hard fixes and what would you change well you know i if we're thinking just broadly uh, about um, financial risk protection, then I, I have to admit, I, I, I consider myself an incrementalist, um, uh, not because I don't uh, believe in, for example, um, a single payer, but because I, w- I want actually something to be done. And the current climate um, just doesn't seem favorable to single payer. So I was a big fan of um, the public option uh, that was originally a part of Bom- Obamacare, um, and again, that doesn't address the specific issues you and I were talking about, but it does start to peel people away from uh, in- private insurance companies and their Byzantine, um, ridiculously opaque policies that prevent me as a provider, I'm sorry, me as a physician and our patients from understanding what their potential costs would be. Um, so that's sort of broad. And then specifically, I wondered. And I suspect the insurance companies are, are the limiting factor here. Why isn't a private corporation or even a government corporation um, or a project out there to truly make pricing transparent? So what do I mean by that? Well, we all know that the legislation passed that hospitals have to publish their prices. Good luck finding them, first of all, on any hospital website. And second of all, good luck figuring out how that actually applies to you and your insurance situation. And it's only 300 conditions. So and it's a, exactly it, it's it's a frankly it's a farce in my opinion. Um, so why not have uh, a simple database matching um, algorithm where insurance companies uh, plug in their multitude of different plans and benefits to potential charges and prices based on contracts with hospitals or or physicians um, and provide upfront estimates. I mean, what other service do you go to where you have no idea? what you're going to be billed and what you're going to be responsible for. Physicians don't understand this, right? Physicians don't understand what their bills might be. And that's absolute insanity. So long story short, I think upfront pricing transparency would save a lot of the agony for patients who would say, you know what? My stuffy nose wasn't bothering me enough for me to pay $500 for a scope that now I can't um, use for groceries. So upfront pricing transparency. And Wendy, you had had an excellent um, thought about this as well, 
along the lines of like a, a commission. Um, I think what you're referring to is this concept of almost like the Consumer Protection Bureau for credit cards. Yes. For insurance companies. Right. That's that's it. Exactly. Um, and then uh, one other thing I talked about, Wendy, is I had a failed business idea um, to start a patient advocacy app that easily um, connected patients uh, with patient advocates. Um, so they didn't have to go searching um, uh, on Google to find somebody that would be able to help them advocate to um, uh, take care of uh, a ridiculous hospital bill that, again, is it opaque and nobody understands. Yeah. I'm struggling to get over the what I'm imagining your clinic appointments look like, where you make the diagnosis and you have a list of options. But then not only do you have to go through the risks and benefits of the options, you also have to go through the potential financial costs. Right. And possibly explain how your patient's insurance works. You know, as clinicians, we all have the, the spiels that we can give to patients for treatments, right? You can start thinking about something else. So that I have a spiel for deductibles, coinsurance, copays, um, premiums. And I will say that the, you know, the financial piece or the financial counseling always is at the, at the end of the appointment. So as I'm ordering, you know, um, uh, eardrops, I'll say, okay, have you ever heard of good RX? And this is as I'm typing, they'll say no. And I'll say, well, okay, doesn't sound like uh, it should work, but it does. If you get to the pharmacy and they haven't filled the prescription and they don't tell you why, or if they charge you more than 20 or 30 bucks, then you can use this GoodRx. And let me show you how to use GoodRx and, you know, download the app. And um, again, it's something I feel is important to do because I frankly couldn't have somebody's financial devastation on my consciousness or conscious, I should say. Um, but it, it certainly eats into um, clinic appointments. It's fascinating, isn't it, how little... Um and I was going to say how little people know about their insurance, but I'm actually going to yes. say how little we all know about insurance because physicians are not exempt from this until something terrible happens. And it's a little bit like your car insurance. You often don't know whether you've got good or bad car insurance. I mean, you might have looked through the policy, but you probably don't know exactly the details of it until something happens. And then you're like, whoa, they don't cover this. Like you, I have people who I submit a request to their insurance company. I find out later that, or I find out before we operate that, hey, this is not a covered benefit. And they've had this insurance for 10 or 20 years and find out later that's not the case. It's always fascinating to me how little we all understand about our insurance. And I think your point about transparency could even be expanded, right? It's not just pricing transparency. It's how your insurance works, how your copays work, how your coinsurance works, how your premiums work, who's on your policy, what your maximums are. These things are so underappreciated and, and, and misunderstood, I think, by, by many of us, physicians included. I'm always astounded. I have a two-physician family. If we can't figure out what is going on with our health insurance, how? Exactly. When, when, when we, yeah, <laughs> when we work exactly. with it all day, every day. <laughs> how can we possibly expect our patients who are experts in other things to figure it out. Yeah, I you know, two points to follow that up on. The information asymmetry. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm a cynic, but I think it's purposeful. Um and uh you know, what actually led uh Wendy and I to connect on this was exactly the point she was making. I think I responded to, <laughs> to a Facebook comment actually. Um somebody had said that a, a patient should understand, you know, what their 
deductible is or the copay is? And I responded, you know, respectfully, absolutely not. For all the reasons Wendy just discussed. I mean, if physicians can't navigate the system or have a hard time navigating the system, and I'm, we're a two-physician couple as well, and um, we've had to navigate um, and advocate for ourselves uh, financially, um, then how can we expect folks who don't have the time to develop health literacy or don't have the time to develop financial literacy to be able to navigate this? It's, it's beyond the pale, in my opinion. Even the terms are confusing, right? Co-insurance, co-pay. Like, right. Like, yeah, and provider. You, they're not obvious. <laughs> and the provider. It can mean the person who's actually delivering the care in the room, or it can mean the hospital. It's an ambiguous term, and I think it's intentionally so. I, I have come to believe this as well. Um, I, have a, I have a very brief question that may not be uh, just because it comes up at this point in my, in my own mind. Are you aware of any great places that we can refer our patients to for education on this? Because... I certainly do a little bit of what you do, which is try and educate people on this. But I wonder if there's actually resources or I wonder if there are resources that we can direct people to that are good. Or if, again, it's intentional that those resources don't exist. The, the short answer is uh, yes. I, I don't know off the top of my head what the actual website and links are, but there are some really nice infographics that do their best to break down you know, the, these basic insurance terms. Of course, that doesn't get to, you know, the actual benefits of an insurance policy, which, you know, again, opaque Byzantine, but at least a basic understanding. Yes, that exists, but I, I don't know off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. um, Wendy, I saw you nodding. Did you? <laughs> so there's a great book called Never Pay the First Bill by Marshall Allen, which we'll put in the show notes. And I've heard of an advocacy group that both helps patients understand how to push back against these bills, but also can help them actually walk through that. Yes, they, they exist. And I've seen, and again, I don't know off the top of my head, because frankly, every time I'm working with a patient, I just Google it with them. Yeah. Um, but th I've seen two models. One is just a truly free model. Somebody is willing to look through a patient's bills and, and tell them what doesn't look um, above board. And then the other model is they will fight the hospital bill, but take a percentage of what they get back, like five or 10%, something like that. Um, both of those models uh, are out there. I just don't know the names. You know, the other part of it that I always find fascinating, and I've experienced this myself because I've called my own insurer and said, hey, what does it take to get this covered or what's covered? And almost universally, you get this answer back, which is, well, if your doctor says it, you need it, then it's covered by your insurance. And well, that, that may be true, but it may be covered by your insurance with a massive copay, or it may be covered by your insurance only in unique situations. And I'm always fascinated how often I get that answer to my patients and they say to me, well, I, I just need you to say that I need this operation done and then it's good. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to bankrupt them to go through that. And that's what I'm always fascinated by, this, this um, dichotomy between what is covered and what is covered to a reasonable degree <laughs> and, 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 you know, the consequences of uh, our decision-making. Absolutely. And I, I think for me, that's the hard part is it's hard to be a patient and it's also hard to be a physician knowing that what you're recommending can be harmful even when you're healing. Like you're caught, you're caught both ways. Right. And to bring this back to the topic of our entire podcast series of moral injury, the idea that you know what the right thing to do is, but you're caught between 
doing something medically right for a patient and doing something financially right for a patient, trying to take care of those two sides when they're sometimes in direct conflict with one another can become not only harmful to the patient, but also really troubling for us. And that, I think, is that time at which you do start to recognize the moral injury that comes from making those decisions. I mean, couldn't have said it better. Um, I, I'm, I'm so fortunate that the uh, institution I worked, Mass Ioneer, the physicians still have a lot of autonomy. Um, uh, we, we, colleagues look out for each other. Um, there are so many um, positives, but the institution that you work at in no way can fight against the broader infrastructure of our healthcare financing. Um, and uh, that's the that's the troubling part. I mean, I know the people in billing because we're a small institution and I can email them and say, hey, you know, uh, <laughs> this patient, even though we told them we were a network, turns out we're not, please make sure that she's not charged. And I know that that will happen. Um, but if you work at a broader institution, especially if you're working for, you know, um, uh, a place, frankly, that's been bought out by private equity, and you're really driven towards the the profit motive. I, I can't. I have to believe that many of our colleagues have a more challenging time being able to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, your point is interesting. That this is certainly larger than the individual physician-patient relationship. It transcends the hospital-physician-patient relationship. It even goes beyond the insurance-physician relationship because. Um, insurance companies are, are, are private institutions as well. This is truly a massive systems issue and an infrastructure issue that many of the parties involved never intended to occur, but it is an unintended consequence of developing the system that we have. Yeah. Well said. Well, Blake, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a great conversation. I do think there are ways we can impact the system for better. And I hope we can continue to work together towards that end. Well, absolutely. I, I had a blast talking to you guys, um, even the subject matters on, on the more serious side. I, I mean, talking about um, things that provide meaning to us as physicians and to our patients, um, great way to spend a, a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and Blake, it's good to see you so many years later doing so, so much good. So thank you. Right back at you, my friend. I've been waiting to have that conversation with Blake for quite a while. When he responded to that Facebook comment, it was a moment of sort of an aha moment for me. And I thought, oh, wait, of course we need to be worried about this. We, we worry all the time about whether patients are covered from the organizational standpoint, but it's becoming increasingly difficult patients to know what's covered and what liabilities they'll have on the back end. Right. When we speak about this in our groups about moral injury specifically, it's fascinating how often the concept of insurance comes up. And I think this is taking it one step further, which is not just whether insurance will cover something, but what the consequences are of uh, the finances in our healthcare system. Right. And I think as Blake alluded to, those impacts don't affect everyone equally. Mm -hmm. I was reminded of Don Berwick, who talked about healthcare being one of the most regressive industries out there, that the, those who can afford it the least are taxed the most. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's a great place for us to start thinking more broadly about how we can be advocating for our patients in a different way. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. Our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation and you can continue to spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for other listeners to find us. Thanks for listening. And stay well.